Gilliman breathed in deeply and let go a sigh of satisfaction. Everything is falling into place just as it was supposed to. You were right, Gilliman. The voice started the ball of revolution rolling, and it's come all the way to London and into the halls of Parliament, Clary observed happily. Parliament now knows the name behind the voice, Patrick Henry. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. So we invite you to consider partnering with Playful World Ministries with a generous financial gift to ensure that we can continue to bring this podcast each week. So if God is leading you to do so, simply click on the Giving Fuel link that's included in the show notes. And thank you. Now, as you know, all of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, entitled Sons of Liberty, it seems that Patrick Henry's words... It'd be easier just to say Denny. Uh, look what we found, Monsieur Announcer. Again, just saying Denny would be... I say, check out what we found in the shrubbery, Announcer chap. I'm not even going to try. Uh, what, Nigel? What have you, Nigel P. Monaco, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce, and Lizette Briant found? Well, you could have saved a lot of time just saying Max, Liz, and Nigel. Ooh, great idea. I'll make a note of it. Uh, save that for later, old chap. We've discovered this. It's an egg. Hi, lad. But what kind of egg? Some sort of roundish, shell-like... No, 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 monsieur. Uh, what do you believe will be hatched from this? Some sort of baby, I'll wager. No kidding. I say, do you play us for fools? No, you're doing fine on your own. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Listen, Weisenheimer, we know it's an egg, but we don't know what'll hatch from it. Do you? Well, not exactly. <laughs> So you say you found it in the bushes? I believe the term I used was shrubbery, uh, but uh, uh, bushes will suffice. We considered the possibility of it being a baby bird. We, oui, but there is no nest nearby. I checked in all the trees. And I were looking all through the bushes. I'd be well acquainted with them, you know. Oh, I'm sure you are. Uh, but there aren't any nests there either. And our greatest fear is that this poor little one has been tragically abandoned. And thus is perhaps an orphan. Aye, so can we keep it? Well... You know, the Bible does say to take care of widows and orphans. Well, when you put it like that, of course. Uh, but uh, where do you plan to keep it? Well, it can sleep in Liz's kitty bed. Uh, pardon? <laughs> well, my pet, you probably are the most nurturing among us. Uh, perhaps, but uh, Max himself was an orphan, so who better to take care of this little one? Uh, but you know how I tend to dream and start kicking and running in me sleep. I wouldn't want to hurt the wee, uh, whatever it is. Well, okay, fine. The little bugger can stay in my newsroom until he cracks open. Oh, merci, Nigel. 
and I suggest you keep it on the warm side in there to help promote the incubation process. Yes, yes. I rather like it a bit toasty myself. Well, now we just need to figure out what species it is. Aye, but if it do turn out to be a bird, how long before it'll be flapping his wings and trying to fly? Or what if it is a different species altogether? Like what? Well, uh, reptiles lay eggs. Well, judging by the size, I believe we can rule out a crocodile. Or dinosaurs. Oh, we, Max, we can cross dinosaur off the list. So what other reptile could it be? Well, it could be a salamander or some other interesting lizard. Or... Uh-oh. What if it be a, a snake? I say, if that thing is a snake, it shan't be hatching in my newsroom. Why not? You'd have breaking news, then. <laughs> uh, not funny, old boy. A baby snake might return my favor of incubation with ingestation. Oh, well, perhaps he should stay with Max after all. I know you could handle hatching a baby snake, mon ami. What? I don't handle snakes at all. Well, do not look at me. What happened to taking care of the widows and orphans? Fine. You put him in your bed, monsieur. I wasn't trying to rescue him in the first place. Why not, lad? Do you not care, monsieur? Indeed. Think of the child, my friend. Oh, knock it off, all of you. Right now, what I care about most is bringing this week's chapter, because I don't believe this, uh, well, whatever it is, will be hatching before we check in on our colonial friends. So for now, put the egg in Nigel's studio, and we'll come back to it after we hear... Part 4. Liberty or Death Chapter 48 Sons of Liberty November 1st, 1765 I'll sooner die than pay a farthing for a single stamp, a man cried in the tavern of Newcastle, Virginia. He looked around the room and lifted his pewter mug. I am sure all my countrymen will do the same. Aye, a toast to our very own noble patriot, Mr. Patrick Henry, called another man, lifting his mug. To Mr. Henry, another fellow added, lifting his glass. If the governor or any of his kind comes up here to hurt him, I'll stand by Patrick Henry to my last drop of blood. Aye, even if we have to call the French back to help us fight. Another answered. The voice in the house has now been heard round the world, Clary reported proudly. Gilliman and Clary stood in the midst of the iamosphere, gazing at panel after panel of scenes in time since May that showed the effects of the fire ignited by Patrick Henry in the House of Burgesses. Word of what happened blazed first throughout Virginia to the gazettes in the northern colonies, southward to the papers in the Carolinas and Georgia, and in letters and papers across the Atlantic all the way to London. Colonists were toasting Patrick Henry and the Virginia Assembly far and wide, while King George and Parliament gritted their teeth at the firestorm raging against the Stamp Act up and down the Atlantic seaboard. It didn't matter that Patrick and the young Burgesses were unable to get all Henry's resolves passed in the house. Liz, Nigel, and Cato were able to get them all passed unanimously in the papers throughout the colonies, Gilliman remarked with a broad grin. 
they have indeed made the most of treason. Well done. Clary pointed to a panel where a group of people clustered around a copy of the June 24th Newport Mercury paper in Rhode Island. The smallest colony of all was the first to boldly print Patrick's resolves, but their assembly took it even further, being the only colony to approve outright resistance. I'm proud of little Rhode Island for standing up to Parliament. They remind me of David standing up to Goliath, she smiled and then pointed to a scene in Boston. So by printing Patrick's resolves, Rhode Island made Virginia appear bolder than they actually were. The colonies just assumed that the Virginia House of Burgesses had passed all seven resolves. Once the Boston Gazette printed them, Massachusetts was ashamed of how their colony had backed down timidly when the Stamp Act was passed. Their governor wrote to London that the Virginia resolves were an alarm bell to be disaffected. And another Massachusetts man on his deathbed exclaimed, Oh, those Virginians are men. Perception is reality, Gilliman smiled, and his goatee blew in the rushing wind of their time portal. He pointed to another article, this one from France, in the Boston Gazette. For the seven resolves and for the beast of Jebudan. Unfortunately, it's also too true for Boston's James Otis, who seems to be going a bit mad, changing his mind and acting strangely. He went from early on proposing a Stamp Act Congress for the colonies to meet, to backing down after the act was passed, to calling Henry's resolves treasonous, Clary recounted with a frown. None of the colonies were interested in attending the Stamp Act Congress in New York, until Patrick's resolves had been printed throughout the colonies. That spurred on nine of the colonies who were able to send delegates to meet and draw up petitions to send to Parliament. Very, very good, Gilliman said, nodding in approval. Do you realize that, besides the Great Awakening, this Stamp Act crisis is the first thing to unite the colonies on anything? <laughs> it's amazing how Jesus and taxes can move the hearts of people to action, he declared with a chuckle as he pointed to another panel. Twenty-seven delegates were meeting in New York for the Stamp Act Congress. Virginia indeed rang the alarm bell for the continent. Yes, and not just in the Stamp Act Congress, but with the Sons of Liberty groups that have popped up throughout the colonies. Clary added, as a violent mob scene in Boston came into view. Massachusetts made up for feeling ashamed about its cowering. Although Virginia first suggested resistance, Boston was the first to turn words into action. In fact, they went a bit overboard with violence in protesting the Stamp Act. Their Loyal Nine resistance group soon grew and took the name Sons of Liberty. They loved Barr's nickname for American patriots. Boston has always seemed to love violence for its own sake. It's a powder keg there. And that Samuel Adams is a feisty leader to watch, Gilliman said with a slight grin as he pulled the panel for August 14th into view. They watched as the Sons of Liberty hung an image of their appointed stamp distributor, Andrew Oliver, in effigy from their Liberty Tree. They sent a clear message. 
threatening the man if he dared follow through with his job of enacting the stamp tax come November 1. Liberty Tree. The original Liberty Tree was violent as well. Look what they did next, Clarie exclaimed, as the hot-headed Bostonians cut down the effigy and paraded it through the streets. They marched and shouted, Huzzah! all the way to Oliver's newly built stamp office building, where he was planning to distribute the stamps. The Sons of Liberty proceeded to burn and stomp all over the effigy before they entered the building and destroyed everything in sight, including all the furniture. Then they pulled down the building itself. Poor Andrew Oliver was first. Their next target was Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, Gilliman said, pointing to the panel for August 26th. The mob also destroyed his house. This behavior has spread across the colonies, with some poor souls being tarred and feathered. All colonial stamp distributors appointed by the Crown have received the same encouragement to quit their jobs before the act goes into effect. The good news is that after the most violent riots in Boston and Rhode Island, only mere threats of violence were needed in the other colonies to get the stamp distributors to give up their posts. Only the colony of Georgia has a stamp distributor now, and his job won't last long. Meanwhile, in London, Grenville didn't last long as Prime Minister, Clary quipped as she pointed to a panel of the Royal Palace. King George threw a copy of the August Gentleman's Magazine across the room, barely missing Al, who darted under the settee. David Henry's paper printed his cousin's seventh resolve under the heading of Remarkable Events. It didn't take long then for the London Chronicle to print all Patrick's resolves, along with news of riots against the Stamp Act blazing through the colonies. The people of London can't get enough of this news. So King George fired Grenville as Prime Minister and replaced him with Charles Watson Wentworth, Marquis of Rockingham, Gilliman noted. His third Prime Minister so far, and he's just getting started with musical ministers. It won't take long for more heads to roll once the London merchants petition the King and Parliament. Not only are the colonists refusing to put the Stamp Act into effect, but they are now boycotting British goods. The ports and the courts are closing, as merchants and lawyers prepare to halt business until the Stamp Act is repealed. Ships cannot clear their cargo without the stamps, nor can lawyers proceed without stamped legal documents. Meanwhile, the other hardest-hit group, the printers, keep fanning the flames of this Stamp Act crisis in the papers. Gilliman breathed in deeply and let go a sigh of satisfaction. Everything is falling into place just as it was supposed to. You were right, Gilliman. The voice started the ball of revolution rolling, and it's come all the way to London and into the halls of Parliament, Clarie observed happily. Parliament now knows the name behind the voice, Patrick Henry. Gilliman smiled. Indeed. He touched another panel, which showed Governor Farquhar writing to London about Patrick in explanation of what had happened in the House of Burgesses. In the course of the debate, 
I have heard that very indecent language was used by a Mr. Henry, a young lawyer who had not been above a month a member of the house, who carried all the young, hot, and giddy members with him. Gilliman continued, Patrick's fiery words have set the colonists on a path from being Englishmen to becoming Americans. For the first time, the colonies have found common ground to learn how to communicate and come together to take action as one unified force, Clary agreed. This is also exciting, Gilliman. The Stamp Act crisis is the colony's dress rehearsal for revolution. Speaking of dress rehearsals, Gilliman said, he put his hoof into another panel and the village of Chavagnac in the south of France came into view. Gilliman smiled affectionately as he watched the nine-year-old Marquis de Lafayette enthusiastically lead a parade of admiring young boys through the streets of Chavagnac. They were celebrating the news that the king's royal armor-bearer had killed a massive wolf and had it stuffed and sent to Versailles. Gilbert led the boys in a pretend wolf hunt in the gardens of the chateau with wooden swords and sticks to reenact the victory, followed by a pretend battle with the British. Max and Kate have done well in protecting Gilbert from the wolves, but they know the enemy will not let up, Clary said. They must remain vigilant until the young Marquis leaves the south of France. The youngest son of liberty is enjoying his victory dress rehearsal. Make her willing, his victory parade will someday be the real thing, Gilliman predicted, then grew more serious. But first must come the real battles he will have to fight. So, Max, if you are capable of handling wolves, I believe you can handle a tiny little baby snake, we? Ah, uh, but that don't mean I want to. Of course, we still don't know what kind of egg this be. Ah, uh, true. But we do have an enterprising rodent friend who is doing intense research as we speak to find out exactly <laughs> what kind of egg we have discovered. <laughs> you would, too, if you had one about to hatch in your studio. We, oh, oui, that is for sure. So we will check back with him later to gather his findings. Right now, we shall head to Jenny's Corner as she helps explain this interesting chapter and the importance of the words we use. Uh, bonjour, madame. Well, hello, Max and Liz. Uh, Miss Jenny, I hear you have a wee question for us. So, what's your question, then? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, in our case today, the egg. And in God's word, it be the chicken. But we still just have the egg, and we don't even think it's a chicken. Riddles like that just make me go crazy, so I don't really like riddles too much because I get really frustrated. Ah, oh, je comprends. Uh, trust me. And yet, you're going to ask us a riddle anyway. Uh, so what's your riddle, Les? What comes first, words or actions? And which is the most important? Uh, I got no idea. Uh, oui, madame. Please explain. Well, in this chapter, The Sons of Liberty... These few pages kind of summarize the impact of words. And whenever I sign copies of The Voice of the Revolution and the Key, I always like to say, find your voice in history. This is why Patrick Henry became known as the voice of the revolution. This simple little chapter, you're going to see the full rollout 
of how he set the ball of the revolution rolling and the impact that his Stamp Act speech had. Just to refresh your memory, Patrick Henry had come up with seven resolves, each one more inflamed than the next as far as, you know, the seventh becoming just traitorous in the eyes of many. And the Virginia House of Burgesses passed five of them. Patrick Henry rode out of town. The next day, they erased one from the record, and so only four passed. But someone, and we don't know who in history, sent all seven resolves up to the northern papers as if they had passed. And little Rhode Island, the smallest colony of all, printed all seven as if they had been passed by the Virginia House of Burgesses. And an amazing thing happened. When people started to read Patrick Henry's full seven resolves, they became emboldened. And then it spread to other newspapers in the northern colonies. And when Massachusetts got a hold of them and they printed them, that's when Sam Adams and the boys formed the Sons of Liberty. And by the way, they took that name from Isaac Barr in Parliament, who's the one that actually coined the phrase Sons of Liberty when he's talking about how you better be careful how you treat the colonies because they're going to rise up. And sure enough, Sons of Liberty became the moniker, the name that Sam Adams and rebels gave themselves to fight against the injustices of the parliament and the king. So the Sons of Liberty start forming in Massachusetts and all throughout the colonies, but Patrick Henry's resolves cross over the Atlantic Ocean, and now they're printed in the London papers. And Patrick Henry's cousin, David Henry, passed an article called Remarkable Developments, and it shows Patrick Henry's resolves. So it rolled all the way into Parliament, and the name of Patrick Henry was heard over there. And Patrick Henry had only been a Burgess just for a few days, and he was a young guy, and he was new at this. But look at the impact that one voice standing up against tyranny can do. So let me ask you, if there's something wrong, if there's an injustice or tyranny happening in your circle of influence, are you going to speak up about it? Is it right to speak up against tyranny, against someone being oppressed, someone who is being deprived of their rights to free speech, all of those wonderful Bill of Rights that we have, free speech, the right to protect yourself, the right to worship freely, to speak freely, to gather freely, all of these things. It takes just one person to rise up and be the first to boldly say something about it, because that always encourages and makes other people brave and bold, doesn't it? This chapter proves it, shows it exactly what happened when Patrick Henry spoke up. So let me encourage you to be bold and speak the right words at the right time after you've prayed and say, God, should I speak up about this? And he'll tell you what to do. But the world just might be changed if you do. Ah, three bien, Miss Jenny. And you are living proof of being a bold voice for God's truth. Aye. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we need to find out the truth about what's inside the egg we found. And since Mousy's been researching it... It is time for another Niger's Egg Nuggets. I mean, uh, Niger's News Nuggets. Uh, pardon. Uh, right. Uh, greetings. 
Nigel P. Monaco reporting from the newsroom slash incubator as we delve into the supposed species developing inside this shelled birthing room, as it were. Now, casual inspection of said egg shows it to be quite spherical in shape, uh, not oblong as one would expect from most of our feathered friends. For while birds' eggs come in a variety of colors and even patterns, they are typically of the distinctive oval shape we think of as egg-shaped, by and large. Aye, by and large, by an extra large, and by and medium, too, for that matter. Ah, right. Uh, conversely, our egg in question is nearly round, much resembling the common North American ping-pong ball. <laughs> I say, jolly good. <laughs> So, I am inclined to favor the theory that this is some sort of reptilian offering. Oh, dear. Do you think it is a snake, mon ami? Well, quite the contrary, my dear, for many of the snakes that we commonly encounter in this region actually give live births. And most snake eggs are very similar in shape and size to birds' eggs. The main difference, of course, being the hardness of the shell. Reptile eggshells are generally much softer than birds. Aye. And that egg of yours be soft. I were real careful when I were handling it then. I say, brilliant. That was wiser than you knew, old chap. You see, being softer, reptile eggs are much more vulnerable than birds' eggs. In fact, to maximize the chances of survival for the uh, contents, I shall not touch this egg any further. So, here's hoping this egg is soon to complete its gestational mission. For Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm... Wait. Wait just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. I interrupt my closing signature for this new development. It seems there is movement within the shell, and that the shell is about to shatter, and our newborn guest is about to arrive. <laughs> See, Mosey, I told you, breaking news. <laughs> what is it, Nigel? Well, so far it is predominantly uh, slimy. Oh, no, 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 not on my cushions. Oh, bother. Uh, wait. I can now see the nose. Indeed, it does seem to be of the reptilian species. Mousy, is it a gecko? <laughs> they do them funny commercials, you know. <laughs> Max, uh, what else can you see in a shell? Uh, strangely, it seems to be a shell within a shell. Ooh, it be a wee turtle? Is it a turtle, Nigel? Indeed, a fine young uh, snapping turtle. Uh, hello, little fellow. Hey, Daddy-o, tell me, what do you know? I just woke up from my nap, now I just got a snap. So listen, Daddy-o, tell me, what, what's the haps? Well, first of all, young fellow, I am not your Daddy-o. Uh, secondly, uh, you just hatched from your egg and have entered an entirely new world. Cool, man, cool, and I ain't no fool. I come with my own shell, so it's... Plain to tell, I'm just a jive little turtle, and I think that's swell. Well, I'll be a Scotty, and I'm wagging me tail that I were careful with you, lad, and I did not fail. He brought you in from the cold to our warm little house and set you down on a bed. Indeed, the bed of a mouse. Well, Mousy, I'm grateful that you gave up your bed. And by the looks of things, I'll be sleeping on the couch instead. And so ends the mystery of what we're inside. Now the rest is history. Our guest has arrived. So thanks, now you all have a tale to tell. About a wee little turtle who came out of his shell. Thank, Thank you. you. Good, Good night. night. I say, uh, 
Cool, Dario. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! I say, uh, cool, Dario. And always remember, you are loved and you are able.